which is saying a, a versified version, a, a tune, uh, a, a musical version of Psalm 139 together. Now I'm going to read to you as uh, for our scripture reading uh, the first 16 verses of Psalm 139 from God's Word. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139, verses 1 to 16. Then our sermon passage this morning is taken from John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. I'll start reading at verse 13 just to give a little of the context for that passage. But our uh, sermon focuses on verses 23 to 25 of John 2. So again, uh, Psalm 139, verses 1 to 16, and John 2, verses 23 to 25. To 25. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. It's very important for each of us to give our full attention to God's word because he is speaking to us. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was, not, there was none of them. Now turning to John's Gospel, chapter 2, again we'll begin reading at verse 13, but our emphasis is on verses 23 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired, infallible and inerrant word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, at one and the same time, we are both nervous about the fact that you know what is in us, but also, Lord, we're comforted by it. Lord, it is true there are things we would rather hide from you, that we would rather you not know. And yet, Lord, we are greatly comforted by the fact that you do know these things about us. We're comforted by the fact that you know that you knew these things about us before you purposed to save us before the foundation of the world. You knew our sin. You knew that we would be enemies of yours and the specific ways in which we would carry out that enmity, the ways in which we would act upon it. You knew our hatred of you. You knew all of the sins that we would commit against you, the rebellious acts that we would engage in. And yet, O Lord, still, you came. Christ Jesus, you came. And you lived and you died for us. But we pray that you would help us to have a better understanding of what that means. That you would grow us in our knowledge of who you are and what you have done. And so we pray that you please guide us as your word is now preached. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Now in that previous passage we read about the cleansing of the temple where Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, when Jesus got there, he got to the temple, rather than finding an environment in the temple that was conducive to worship, It was chaotic. It was a marketplace. And if you've ever been to a a real, true, open-air marketplace, then you might have an idea of what it was like. Shopkeepers had set up shop. There were money changers. All kinds of things was going on. And so Jesus found the cacophony and the chaos and the confusion of a a marketplace, of of a souk that you might find in the Middle East. And in an effort to restore the purity of the temple, to restore the purity of its worship, Jesus purged it of the money changers and the vendors who had set up in the Gentile court. Now, as we know from the other three Gospels, Jesus cleansed the temple a second time at the end of his life. This cleansing of the temple was at the beginning of his public ministry, in the first year of that ministry. The other three Gospels contain the cleansing of the temple at the end of his life, where he goes to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, not to celebrate the Passover in the same way he does here, but to be crucified, to become the Passover lamb. And so Jesus' multiple attempts at cleansing the temple, it stand in contrast to his single successful cleansing of a multitude of sinners when he died on the cross. Those attempts at cleansing the temple, ultimately they were unsuccessful, weren't they? He drove out the uh, the money changers, out the merchants, and they came right back. Jesus' attempt at cleansing sinners on the cross was 
completely successful. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead proved that just as he had conquered death, so that everyone who believes in him has been given victory over sin and death. That was the conclusive proof that we have indeed been cleansed, those who belong to Jesus. Now, our passage this morning says that many believed in him because of the signs that he was doing during the Passover feast. The passage doesn't say that they were absolutely, had true and saving faith in Jesus, but that they believed in him. If we think about the, the parable of the sower, they were kind of like the, 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 the grass that grows up. The, the, the seed is, is sown, it's, it's broadcast out, and some springs up very quickly and then quickly withers up and dies. But all we read here is that many believed in Jesus because of these signs. However, Jesus did not put much confidence in them because, as verse 25 says, he knew what was in man. And because of his knowledge of man, he dared not entrust himself to these people. But his knowledge of human beings did not stop him from coming to earth to save us from our sins. Now, this passage teaches us many things, but it teaches us at least these three things. It teaches us about God, it teaches us about ourselves, and it teaches us about the salvation that comes to sinners through Jesus. As we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to keep this thought in mind. Despite the fact that Jesus knew the sinfulness in us, he willingly died on the cross to save us. Despite the fact that Jesus knew the sinfulness in us, he willingly died on the cross to save us. So the sermon is divided into three parts. I've already given you a hint at what those three parts are. The first is divine knowledge, otherwise known as theology. The second part is to trust or not to trust. That's anthropology because it has to do with what Jesus knows about us. He knows about mankind. And the third part is still he came. That's soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. So theology, the doctrine of God. Anthropology, the doctrine of man. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And that is our three points. The first point again, divine knowledge. The second point, to trust or not to trust. The third point, still, he came. Let's look at the first part of the sermon, divine knowledge, theology. We've said that this passage teaches us about God. Specifically, it teaches us about divine knowledge or omniscience. God knows everything. Jesus was living proof of the fact that God knows everything. Now, Jesus and his, and his disciples, Jesus had just cleansed the temple. He had, he had fashioned a whip and cracked the whip and drove out the sellers. It was a very controversial, it would have been a controversial act on his part. But they remained in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. During this time, Jesus had done additional supernatural signs. He'd, he'd done miracles in, in the common parlance of the day. And when the people in the city saw him perform signs, John says in verse 23, they believed in his name. Now, it's difficult to parse out and sort of tease out exactly what that means. They believed in his name. Probably it means some had true faith. For some, the, the seed that was sown truly took root, and, and it was going to grow up and bear fruit. For others, their faith was not true in saving faith. It was, it was a temporary kind of faith. 
But verse 24 says that Jesus did not entrust himself to these people who had believed in him. And the word that's translated entrust there is the same word that's translated believed. So even though they believed in him, Jesus did not believe in them. He didn't put his trust in them. Now we'll get, exactly, get to exactly why Jesus didn't entrust himself to these people in the next section. But he did this because he knew what was in man, as the end of verse 25 says. Now, once again, John is providing, he's offering a theological insight into who Jesus is. We already we saw in chapter 1 of, of John's gospel, when Jesus met Nathaniel, that Jesus knew him before he met him. Only God could know the things that Jesus knew about Nathaniel. And because of this knowledge, Nathaniel confessed Jesus as the Son of God and the King of Israel. We know from the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John just who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh through whom all things were made. John, in a sense, is a, is, a, is a restatement of the book of Genesis, the opening chapter of Genesis. Jesus was there. He was present at creation because he is God. And John is not going to allow us to forget this in this book. In our passage, we see that Jesus possesses an attribute, knowledge, in a way that only God can possess it. Now, theologians, we're going to get a little bit into the weeds here. Bear with me. Stick with me. Pay attention if you can. Uh, but theologians say that there are two categories for God's attributes or characteristics, his incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. So what in the world are those things? Well, the incommunicable attributes are those characteristics that are God's alone, that, that only God has. That no other creature, not even man, who is the, the highest of all of his creatures, the crown of creation, not even man has. So, for instance, God's aseity, also known as his self-existence, is an attribute that belongs only to God. God needs nothing outside of himself for his existence. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't depend upon anything else to exist. But humans are utterly dependent on many things outside of ourselves for our existence. As creatures, we need things outside of ourselves to live. We, we need food. We need water. We need air. We need clothing. We, we need people. We need relationships. We need these things. We ultimately need God for God to will us to exist. Some other incommunicable attributes of God are his immutability. That means his unchangeableness. He, he does not change. He doesn't shift according to whim, according to any sort of external pressure. He stays the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His infinity, his infiniteness is something that he does not share or communicate to his creatures. But there are other attributes of God that are communicable, attributes that he gives to humans. Some of his communicable attributes are his wisdom, his truth, his power, and his knowledge. Now, we don't possess any of those attributes in the same way that God does. But we do possess them to a certain degree. So they're the same in kind, but different in degree. We have a certain amount of knowledge about God and about creation. But we don't have God-like knowledge about God or about creation. We have a certain amount of knowledge about ourselves, but we don't have God-like knowledge about ourselves. And so we don't possess any of these communicable attributes in the way that God does, the same way that he does. But we do possess them to a certain degree. And so, for instance, we've already alluded to this, we can have true knowledge, but we can't have tr uh, omni uh, I'm sorry, comprehensive knowledge. We're not omniscient. We can't know everything 
to perfection. We can't know anything to perfection, even ourselves, but we can have true knowledge. Knowledge that we have can be true. Knowledge that we have may be false as well, but we can know the truth. And this brings us back to our passage. It can be said that Jesus, as a man, has knowledge of human beings that are true. But if Jesus is only a man, he cannot understand or know humans comprehensively, completely, inside out, through and through, to our very core. But Jesus is more than just a man. He is God. First he is God, and then he is man. And as a result of this, his knowledge of man is complete. It is, is exhaustive. It is comprehensive. He knows everything about mankind. He knows everything about men, women, boys, girls. He knows everything about every human being because he's God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to, him, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Psalm 30, 139, most of which we read just before the sermon, it makes clear that God's knowledge of David is complete, perfect. There's nothing that David can do or think that God does not know. And David isn't speaking exclusively of himself here. He's acknowledging that God knows everything about everyone. This is the quality of knowledge that John says Jesus possesses. His knowledge of man is not just human knowledge of man. His knowledge of man is that of the creator about his creature. I, I think I've, I've told this story in one form or another before, but some of, so some of you know, I, I had a, when I was 15, I bought, I'd fallen in love with the, the, the early, the first generation of Camaros. And I bought a 1968 Camaro. I'd seen a movie in which a 67 Camaro played a prominent role. I won't say the name of the movie. It might get you all distracted to be thinking about it or wanting to watch it later today, and I don't want to encourage that. It was a black 67 Camaro, I believe, and I just fell in love with that era. And so I ended up with a 68 Camaro. The Camaro got stolen um, from my college. I was coming down on a Friday to go home for the weekend. I was walking down to my car, and my, 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 my pride, my joy, my baby was gone. And lo and behold, about six, eight months later, I'm at home for the summer, Driving through, through town with my mom, we're doing some work in the backyard, building a goldfish pond or something like that, and we passed my Camaro on the road, and I knew that thing. Why did I know it? Well, because my dad, my dad was, he wanted to be a mechanic, but he ended up being a farmer because my grandfather needed him on the farm. He wanted to be a mechanic, and we had taken that car down to bare metal, <laughs> We had taken the engine out of it and rebuilt the engine. We had redone the interior of that car. We had put a new windshield in it. We had replaced the vinyl top on it with new vinyl. We had taken that car apart. We knew it inside and out. We, we had rebuilt the engine completely, had the transmission rebuilt. I knew as much as probably was humanly possible to know about that vehicle. And so when I, we passed it on the road, I knew that was my car. And then the guy gets on the interstate, and he's a couple of miles ahead of us. And we finally, we, we, amazingly enough, it's a sheriff's deputy gets on the interstate in front of us. We get him to stop. We tell him what's going on. This is in the era before cell phones, kids. Sorry, this is 1990. <laughs> we flag this guy down. He thinks some maniac is behind him. I run up and tell him my car that was stolen six, eight months ago is going down the interstate towards Charlotte. Please, we've got to get him stopped. They stop the guy. 
And in order for them to, to, to detain him any longer, I have to give some identifying characteristics that only the owner of that car would know in order for them to detain him and not let him go. And I rattled off a list of characteristics and the sheriff's deputy was fairly amazed. I knew that car inside and out. I still didn't know it perfectly. Not the way that God knew that car. But I loved that car and I knew it. Well, God knows you and me in a far more superior way, a far more exhaustive way. He knows all of our flaws. And despite that car's appearance, it was in very good shape. I knew it had flaws, and I knew those flaws. I knew some of the flaws we tried to cover up when we were having it repainted. God knows our flaws. He knows us inside and out, brothers and sisters. He knows what is in the heart of man. He created us from scratch, and he created and his man has not remained static since the day of creation. It wasn't as if his, his knowledge about man is frozen with Adam and Eve prior to the fall. No, he understands us. God has been with us. His knowledge has grown as we have grown. I guess that's not possible in a sense, but he, he knows us. He knows the end from the beginning. That's a better way to put it, a, a much better way to put it. He doesn't just know man as he was in his innocence prior to the fall. He knows us as sinful creatures. He knows our depravity. And the knowledge was not gained because of his incarnation, though certainly he experienced the actions of depraved people in a way that was different in his incarnation. The one thing that Jesus doesn't know is sin because he committed sin. He didn't commit sin, so he doesn't know sin because he's committed it. He's sinless. But he does know sin. He knows its effects. He knows its consequences. As very God of very God, he knows sin because he knows all things in their totality. God says in Jeremiah 16, 17, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Jesus knows the sin of man because he knows all things completely. We know in part. Jesus knows inside and out. But he also knows our sins because he experienced it in the sense that it was put on him. He bore it. It was as if he were a sinner when he died on that cross. And so we can say that he knows your and my sin better than we know it ourselves. He knows it more fully than we know it ourselves. He knows its consequences in a way that by God's grace we will never know. That brings us to the second part of the sermon, to trust or not to trust, anthropology. It is that complete knowledge that brings us to this next section, to trust or not to trust. Because Jesus, as God, knows all things. He knows the minds of the people who have believed in him because of the signs he did in Jerusalem. As we saw, they believed in him. He did not believe in them. He didn't trust them, and so he did not entrust himself to them. He didn't trust them because he knew them. Now, this gets us to a basic understanding of man. It's, in this passage, a certain group of people are being referred to, those who have believed in his name. Now, as we said, we don't know whether this was true and saving faith or whether this was just sort of a false faith. But Jesus knew. 
We're not told. Jesus knew. But John's statements about Jesus' knowledge of man in verses 24 and 25, these statements are universal. He knows all people, verse 24 says. And he himself knew what was in man, verse 25 says. So though Jesus doesn't entrust himself to this specific group of people who have come to believe in him in some way or other because of the signs that he was doing during Passover in Jerusalem, it, is, it isn't because of them specifically, but because of man in general. He knows the heart of man. He knew the nature of mankind, and he did not trust us. He knows better than we ourselves that though Adam and Eve were created sinless, their innocence was lost when they disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden fruit. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.29, See, this alone I found, that God made man upright. When God, and man, God made Adam, he had no sin. But he continues, but they have sought out many schemes. Man's uprightness before the fall was replaced with scheming after the fall. And it's because of the sinful nature of all men that Jesus, the one sinless man, would not entrust himself to those who believed in his name in Jerusalem. He doesn't entrust himself to these people because as he told his mother at the wedding of Cana, his time had not yet come. To entrust himself to them, even if their faith is true, it would, it would be to quicken rather than to delay the coming of his hour. But imagine being unable to trust anyone else. Imagine having no other human to whom you can entrust yourself. No spouse, no parent, no sibling, no friend. This was the life of the man of sorrows, the life that he lived. And all it takes is just a glance at the headlines. Just turn on the news for a minute. And you will see that Jesus was wise in his unwillingness to entrust himself to others. Human beings are constantly doing harm to each other. We are an untrustworthy lot. Why would God bother with us? As Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Why didn't after the fall God simply cast us off and say, I am done with this people? He purposed to save a people unto himself. Jesus came to save his people. But still, Jesus was very cautious about entrusting himself to them. It's a sad commentary on humanity. Implicit in our passage is the untrust, untrustworthiness of man to have the Son of God be mindful of, of us, much less come and save us. But over the course of three years in public ministry, Jesus did entrust himself to the closest of his disciples, the twelve. And of those twelve, especially Peter, James, and John. He did entrust himself to them over time. But think about this. One of those twelve would betray him outright to the officials. One of the three closest to him would deny him three times. At or after his, his uh, crucifixion, all of the disciples would scatter like sheep. They would live in fear until after his resurrection when he imparted the Holy Spirit to them. Even those closest to him, they in a sense betrayed him. Perhaps not in the same way that Peter did, and certainly not in the same way that Judas did. But they did not keep the trust. They didn't keep the faith in the way that they ought. 
Now, on a side note, also implicit in this passage is that Christians are not required to entrust ourselves to everyone we know. It's not a sin to guard yourself from others, to protect your heart. Jesus proves it. There are unscrupulous people who know that Christians are very trusting of other Christians and they are looking to take advantage of you. This is especially true. We need to be very careful to, to guard our, our older, our seasoned saints, those, those who are our elderly family members, but also our younger ones because they're naturally trusting. And for many people, all you have to do is say you're a Christian and they will welcome you into their home and they'll give you everything they have. There, there is a, a cause to be prudent, to be guarded. It's important that you have people in your life who you can trust so that they can help you to know who else you ought to trust. But people have to earn your trust. You should not grant it to them automatically. And so great care ought to be taken all the while maintaining that care but also being welcoming and loving and friendly. But there's nothing wrong with being guarded, especially if you have been through great harm in the past, suffered abuse of some sort. Care and caution ought to be taken. We've arrived at the last part, part three of the sermon. Still, he came. This is soteriology, doctrine of salvation here. Even though Jesus experienced a lifetime of isolation, not entrusting himself to other people because of his knowledge of man, even though he knew that's exactly what he would experience, still he came to us. Even his own mother didn't fully get him. At Cana, she viewed him as a miracle worker. She expected him to fix a problem with the wine, not thinking of the fact that a miracle would set him on the pathway to the cross. That's when the clock started ticking for Jesus, when he performed his first miracle at the wedding of Cana, and his own mother simply sees him as another miracle worker, not as anyone close to who he truly was. His mother represented the best of humanity to him because she most certainly loved him like no other human being. And there's a, there's a reason, there's truth behind why the Roman Catholic Church venerates Mary. They, they idolize her. But we ought to be thankful for the mother of Jesus. We could say she was a good woman. She cared for her son. Now, they take it certainly too far to the point of worship, idolatry. In one sense, she, she was the best person in Jesus' life. We don't know much about Joseph. He fades from the picture. And still she didn't get it. Still she didn't understand who her son truly was. Verse 25 says that Jesus didn't need anyone else to bear witness to him about man, he himself knew what was in man. He knows all of our thoughts, all of our desires, all of our lusts, all of our inclinations, all of our predispositions. He knows our motives. He knows the things that we do that we think are in secret. In short, he knows all of the sins of believers which would send him to the cross. He knew all your sins, past, present, and future, because he's omniscient, but still he came. Now, knowledge is a blessing. 
But that knowledge can also be a curse. There are time, times when a president's inner circle will keep him from knowing certain things so that they can maintain what's called plausible deniability. Now, you could argue over whether that's a good thing or not, but it happens. There are times when the president thinks that he needs to be able to say that he doesn't know anything about whatever issue has arisen, and so he just leaves it in the hands of those below him to handle. He just does. There are times when, as parents, we might not rather, rather might not know about what our children have done. It's sometimes true, as the adage goes, that ignorance is bliss. This was not the case for Jesus. He was ignorant of nothing. His knowledge of the people for whom he would die was more intimate than a mother's knowledge of her child. But despite knowing all of the sins we would ever commit, still Jesus came. Now we like to think that there's something special about ourselves, something that makes other people want to love us. And on a very local scale, that may be true. We might secretly think, well, yeah, I mean, of course Jesus came for me. I don't, I don't know about that other guy, but I get why he came for me. But the truth is, there's nothing so extraordinary about us that would cause Jesus to come to save us. On a cosmic scale, we are infinitesimally small. It's like comparing the size of the earth to that of the sun and seeing just how small the earth is and then comparing the size of the sun to the size of the whole galaxy. We're just riding on a tiny speck of dust compared to the galaxy we call home. But then compare the galaxy to the universe. What is man that the creator of that universe would be mindful of him, the son of man, that he would care for him? Even if we were perfectly pure and sinless, we would still be insignificant compared with everything that God has made. On a cosmic scale, we are nothing. And God presides over that cosmos. He is over it. He is above it. He is bigger than it. And yet, he's mindful of us. Not only is he mindful of us, but he sent his one and only son to die for the poor and wretched sinners that we are. You see, before he created the universe, before anything that has been created was created, God set his love upon those people to whom Jesus refused to entrust himself. Those whose faith was real, that is. God set his love upon them. He made a covenant in which he promised that he would do whatever it took to save his people from the eternal judgment that their sins deserved. And that covenant ensures that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Faith is the fruit of God's loving you. It's not the cause of God loving you, but it's the fruit of it. It comes as a result of God loving you. And so though Jesus knew exactly how he would be treated, exactly how we would treat him, Though he knew the exact sins that you would commit, when you, which would send him to the cross, he still came to die for you. Though he knew the pain and the suffering that he would experience on the cross, not just the physical pain, which was truly excruciating, which is where we get the word, crucifixion, excruciating. He knew the physical suffering he would endure. He also knew the spiritual suffering from the wrath of his father that he would endure, still he came. 
But if you believe in Jesus, he knows you not only as a sinner, brothers and sisters, he knows you as one whom he loves. He knows you as his brother and his sister. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, by his work in your life, you are being made into someone who is trustworthy. Because you are being made like Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, these things are true for you. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that though you made us from scratch, you know us inside and out. You know all of our thoughts and you know our actions. You know our words. You know our hearts. We are thankful that still you came. Our sin was not enough to make you destroy that which you had created. We are thankful, Christ Jesus, that you came, that you lived a perfect life, and that that perfect life has been credited as our own life. We're thankful that you died a perfect and sacrificial death on the cross, and that in so doing, you have washed us clean from our sins. We are thankful for your resurrection from the dead, because we know that we too have been raised with you. And that we will enjoy a true resurrection at the end of the age. We are thankful, Lord, that though we have done nothing to deserve any of this, though you saw nothing in us that made you want to save us, that made us deserve you saving us when you set your love upon us before the foundations of the world, still you did so. And we are thankful. But we pray that you would help us to remember that you know us. You know what's in our hearts. We pray that you would, be, you would help us to be reminded that you see all that we do. That rather than seeing that as an intrusion, some sort of big brother type of surveillance of us, that we would welcome it. That it would be a great encouragement to us that we have you right beside us. We pray that that knowledge of your knowledge of us would indeed help us not to sin. So we pray, Lord, that you would remind us that you know what is done in secret. Please encourage us, O Lord, by your spirit to walk in obedience with you. But Lord, we are so grateful that Jesus Christ was obedient in everything and that he is for us. We pray this all in Christ's holy name. Amen.